some that I had known, others that I didn't but all of them with the same story, cheated out of their time and money. By now it was clear to I was working for a pyramid scheme. And then there's this moment where I asked him like, it seems like you sell smoke. <laughs> like... Welcome to the Foreign War Podcast, a look into the lives of expats, nomads, TCKs, and aliens of all sorts. This episode, we sit down with three foreigners, all with a story about getting scammed. Scams happen, whether far away in a place unknown or at home, straight to your mailbox. But foreigners live a somewhat disjointed life, filled with translations, transitions, and transient people, making them a perfect target or an unknowing accomplice in a scam. We asked for your true crime stories, and this is what we got. Wait, so um, I just want to clarify: Am I talking about when I got uh, um, when I got arrested and, and my business partner ripped me off, or when I was working for a pyramid scheme? Ooh, obviously we needed both, and that's when we realized the best scam stories are layered. Sure, there are plenty of anecdotes about getting fake bills, taking overpriced taxis, staying in dodgy hostels, and that tea scam that seems to befall every tourist that visits China. But instead of, say, a quick exchange between taxi driver and traveler, foreigners can find themselves in a drawn-out drama of deceit. When we asked longtime China expat Dil King for his story, we decided to split it into two parts because it's just that good. Let's get into the first layer. Um, yeah, so so I moved in from Paris, um, mm. and then uh, you know I was doing like uh, some English teaching gigs and playing rugby and drinking monstrous amounts and trying to understand the Chongqing dialect mm. when. Um, when I get asked by one of the guys on the rugby team, like, hey, Dil, do you want to do a, a monkey suit gig? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm happy to do a monkey suit gig. Um, and he's like, yeah, so you've, you've, you've got like a suit, right? And I'm like, yeah, I've got like my grandpa's suit. And it fits sort of. And he's like, okay, cool. cool. So um, I can't go, but... You know, these guys, they did something to do with, like, uh, interviews or something. Yeah, you just have to sit there and be white. And I was like, all right, well, I can do white pretty fucking good. And um, <laughs> anyway, I, uh, um, I I go and I meet them, and they ascertain that I'm white enough. And um, and then next thing, I'm, like, uh, I'm, I'm on a plane to Shandong, and we get to um, way high which is this, like, tiny little, like, completely forgotten 80s uh, seaside destination, like, micro-town city. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, we went there and in this nice hotel, there's this very, uh, very charismatic um, dude who's the owner of the company and he's talking about so these hundreds of, of farmers. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, you can get a job in Canada or the US and you can be in a meat factory and you can make like 40,000 RMB a month and you know and and all of it is tax free because it's abroad and we are yeah everything's amazing and all of these these farmers they're going fucking nuts 
and then he's like, right, so here's the package, here's the details. And and I'm like, I, you know, my Chinese was still pretty shit at the time, so I could only follow, like, part of what was going on. I'm like, what's, so what's the deal? It's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, you just get this job. So I'm like, so what am I doing? And they're like, oh, well, so we're telling everybody that you are the um, the son of the uh, um, the American meatpacking factory owner, and so you're just interviewing people. And I'm like, but do I have to actually ask answer any questions? They're like, nah, 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 don't worry about that. I just sit there. Pretend like you don't speak Chinese and, um, and you know, and you'll and be fine. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, sweet. So I sit there and at the end of it, they give me like 3,000 quiet. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, to give you an idea, like my rent in Chongqing at the time for a two bedroom, um, like 80 meter apartment was 1,500 a month. So like, you know. Yeah, and, and a bowl of noodles was uh, a, a hundred grams of noodles and in spicy soup was like three iron. So so like that was a lot of fucking money, right? And I was like, oh, I was like, well, if you guys ever need me again, you need to let me know, right? And they're like, yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, anyway, a month later, I've done like nine gigs for these guys, and you know, I bought myself a motorbike with, <laughs> with all of this cash. <laughs> And they turned around and they were like, hey, do you want to just come and work for us? And, you know, and then you just go sit in the office and then whenever we need you to fly out for a gig, you fly out for a gig. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, why not? So they pay me 10k a month. A little background. These white face gigs or monkey suit gigs were pretty common in China. The range of reasons went from just a marketing gimmick to make a company seem more international to straight up fraud. And, as with all of our stories today, a charismatic ringleader uses showmanship to blur right from wrong. So this goes on for like four or five months, and I'm not going to lie, it was one of the less challenging jobs I've ever had. I mean, I just basically sat around in the office and like dreamt about going and drinking afterwards and spent most of the day chain smoking and looking at boobs online. Um, and, uh, and then I would fly out to these crazy, weird, tiny cities and towns all over China and do these interviews. And, uh, and obviously I got to know the owner and his cohort and the owner's crazy charismatic dude who could do the splits in a suit as part of his like dance routine. Whenever he was getting all the employees, um, fucked up and, and getting them excited, he would just randomly do the splits and start doing these crazy dances. He was, he was awesome. Like he's just, he was, he was hilarious. And, uh, and yeah, so, um, I mean, this guy had, uh, 35 offices across China and every single office had a female manager and the female manager was his mistress. <laughs> the most crazy, corrupt dog I've ever seen. But I thought he was just normal corrupt, right? Uh, up until, um, I can't, I'm somewhere in Dongbei, I can't remember which town exactly, but we're in this massive spa and we've been, we've been like um, driving back to the airport and then we've stopped in the middle of nowhere at this hoisuo, um, like a private club. And, um, and then we, we go in and his, uh, his bodyguard, who's called Uyghur, um, Viagra, and then like um, the like two main, like his, his two main like financial guys and then his two main like goons were all there. 
uh, and there was this like big meeting and I was just included in it all. I was like, all right, well, I'll just sit here and smoke and drink. You guys just mutter about how you're going to expand the company. Um, and again, I could only understand about 10%, 20% what people were saying because they were speaking thick and fast and technical business Chinese, um, which mm. at this point was beyond my lexicon, right? Mm. But anyway, we, we, we all strip off naked and we go into this gigantic um, sauna, spa, and, uh, and there's this, like, I want to say 20 foot, 30, 25 foot wide round pool which has got like milk in the water first. It's like milky and it's got rose petals on the surface and all of us climb in butt naked. And, um, and then there's like a chick behind us. Uh, um, and it's like giving us shoulder rubs. And we've got a pack of Zhonghua and a bottle of, of snow beer. Uh, but the fancy snow with the like fancy looking bottle, not the regular one, obviously. And, um, and so I'm there chuffing away on my ciggy, enjoying these boobs on my shoulders and, and you know, and I'm, and I'm swelling on my beer. And I, I decide to ask Viagra, I'm like, yeah, so we got, um, uh, how many of them actually go to like Canada and States? And he's like, you want a passport? You want a pa- passport? Bro, I'll get you a fucking passport. You want, we've all got Canadian passports, man. You don't want an American one. That shit, you get taxed. It's like, nah, we'll get you a Canadian passport. Like, when do you want it? I'll, I'll have it for you in like four months. I'm like, no, 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 dude, dude, dude. I don't want a Canadian passport. I just, I want to know how many of the people, like, you know, go. What's the percentage? And he's like, you fucking serious? None of them go. And I was like, oh. Uh, I, I, you know, get the girl to light my 17th cigarette of the evening, and I take a big, deep drag. So, um, why do it then? And he's like, well, when they sign up, you know, there's there's the uh, the deposit, right, which they have to put down, which you know officially goes to the uh, the the government and the immigration department, and is then returned if the uh, if the application is not successful. And then there's the fee, which we take off the top, and the fee is is you know it's it's twelve thousand or fifteen thousand depending on the city, and he's like, uh, and the de- deposit is fifty thousand. And he's like, so basically what we do is we take all of that money and we invest it in property developments and everything else. And then at the end of the year, when this, the application wasn't successful, we say, okay, well, what we can do is because we've already done all the paperwork, we can we can reapply for you. And the fee, instead of being 12000 it's only 6000 So normally people leave the money with them for two years. So they're getting interest-free loans for two years and using it to then get involved in all kinds of dodgy-ass fucking property deals. I'm sitting there and I'm just like, man, there is not enough fancy snow beer and John Hua cigarettes to make this an easy, easy pill to swallow. <laughs> and, and were you the only one that is like learning this anew? Well, I think everyone else knew. Mm. And I just didn't know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because I'd just been like, I, I was just like, I was just trying to understand the Chinese. Yep. Right? Of like, how do you say a meatpacking plant? <laughs> What's a fucking saw? And I was like, and, and you know, and I was like, okay, so I've learned how to say immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, now how do I, how do I talk about the various, and I was just like, all the vocab I was having to learn was pretty fucking complicated. And like, I was then at the point of like, 
okay, so now I think I'm, because no one spoke a lick of English mm. in the entire company, right? Mm. So by that point, I'd like kind of understood and grasped how like the actual, like the, the fees that were being uh, collected and how everything was going. And then I got to the point where I was like, okay, so now I want to understand, you know, how successful is the business itself. And I started to wrap my head around that. And that's when I discovered that it was a fucking Ponzi scheme. Dylan knew he couldn't keep working for the company. So he tells them he's out. He quits. So we got back to Chongqing after the trip and I sort of kept quite quiet for the rest of the trip because obviously I was a bit bummed out. Mm. And then I turned around to one of my co-workers, Lee, and I was like, hey, so Lee, um, you know that this is a pyramid scheme, right? And he's like, yeah, obviously. I'm like, but you're still here. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, it pays a salary. I'm like, but... But it's but it's it's super dodgy. And he's like, yeah, but I don't have to do any work. I just come in and I process the applications, and it takes me like three minutes to process an entire application and to do all the rest. And then I have ten minutes of playing games, and then I do three minutes to process another one, and then I have ten minutes of games. He's like, I love this shit. I'm like, well, don't you want to be doing something else? And he's like, well, you know, I'm not like you. I don't know anything except you know playing games. Um, but I would love to start a business. And, and so uh, me and him, you know, as I put in my notice, but I still had like three weeks, we basically hatched a plan to um, to start a business and, and take our savings and, and start a whiskey business. What could go wrong? We'll find out next week when jail time, embassy lies, and vanishing capital chase still out of Chongqing. Living abroad comes with a certain degree of confusion, like what Dill mentioned about not understanding the language and laws of a place. But our next guest was conned back home in Lima, Peru. I actually met him in 2009, like right before going to China. I met him through high school friends. And then when I came back in 2012, I came back to Lima no, to live. Sofia Bayon repatriated, and while reconnecting, she made a new friend, Renzo, a serial scammer who used confusion as a weapon. And that's when we started hanging out. And at first, it was kind of the unemployed club because he had had a, a startup in digital marketing. Uh, Ursula had her own enterprise, and I was looking for work. So our schedules were very chill. I remember hanging out at Ursula's house, watching a lot of TV shows. Uh, that's how we spent our days and, and became closer friends. And, and he's really charming and funny, as I mentioned before. Uh, he would always make these stupid kind of jokes. And, and he was also very cariñoso or tender, you know, like, Chofita, let's do this, Chofita, no? Um, so I'm, I'm sad in the sense of, of losing that friend that I thought I had uh, 10 years ago. Cariñoso, meaning sweet, affectionate, a common trait among con artists. Acting this way, Renzo gained the trust of Sofia and her friends. Over years, he built a reputation of being charming and successful, so no one doubted his motives when he asked for money. And then he and I became roommates. 
And at that point, he had been hired by Thomas International, which is a human resource company. And one or two years later, he had become country manager for the company in Peru. So, so that's what he was doing when he started, you know, being able to rent a fancy apartment. And then he was like opening the Mexico branch. And apparently this uh, required investment. But the, so, the company he was working for at the time is legit. And it's yes. still legit. So that company, he gets a job full time. They promote him or however you would say it. And then he's got, you know, income, and, and, access, status. Sounds um, legit. He sounds, sounds like, very legit. Yeah. There is no suspicion, like no suspicion of any deviant activity at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just perhaps the building of this brush persona. So, and, and that's, yeah. so you, you both moved on to like being gainfully employed, but what happened to the startup that Renzo was working on? Well, that's where the first victims per se would come from because one of the partners in that endeavor had been an ex-boyfriend of his. Another had been a mutual friend, like one of the friends I met him through. And there was some sort of break and distancing from those two friends, which later I found out had to do with monetary issues. So there's, there's the startup from way back when that ceased to exist. Then he's rightfully employed by Thomas International. And because it's a franchise of sorts, there was an investment that had to be made for him to open the Mexico branch and, and be the country manager of that. Got it. Um, so he had to front the money to make the Mexico branch happen. Right. But he used his friend's money. Renzo got friends and friends of friends to invest. And there were warning signs that things weren't going well. But at this point, it's difficult to put the pieces together. Even as she recounts the tale, Sofia remembers more and more. And I even, oh my God, I even went to the Mexico office in 2000, 2017 because I, I had a flight to the U.S. that had a layover in Mexico for a day. And it, it was weird because I had forewarned him for a while that I had this layover, but he only told his co-workers that morning that I was coming. Yeah. Um, I don't know the full story of the Mexico branch, but apparently, like, yeah, these these employees have been scammed out of payments. I learned later that it flopped, and the the college friend who, with her husband, had invested in him opening it, never recovered the investment. And and then there's this moment in 2018 or in 2019 where I asked him, like, it seems like you sell smoke, like. <laughs> Sofia got this feeling in her gut that Renzo was not to be trusted. But as her doubt grew, so did the victim count. I had already distanced myself from him. Like on a personal level, I found him not as good of a friend as he had been way back when. Um, he was very money-minded. He, he, he had called me once asking for like a $2,000 loan 
which I'm unable to do and hung up the phone on me when I said, what? <laughs> no. Um, that's when everything starts to unravel because he was, again, renting that really nice apartment where you and I spent Thanksgiving. And at that point, he had not been paying rent for three months. He got evicted, but he had made my friend, who like a friend he met through me, sign as co signer so he was liable for the money and he's the one who who tried to keep the relationship friendly to see if in that way he would convince Renzo to pay back the people he had to pay back and and then I remember one conversation when he said like no he he is a sociopath <laughs> he does believe he is entitled to all these nice things at other people's expenses all of the information came suddenly towards the end of 2019 when my friend who had worked with him was saying like, this is happening with the salaries. Ursula was telling me he had reached out to her not only for money, but like for advice. Um, at this point, she had also distanced herself a bit from him. And then there's this other friend he scammed out of like, a catering gig that he didn't pay for. And to top it all off, he also didn't pay Senora Anila, no? like our cleaning lady, and, and he hadn't paid her for like three months. That was heart-wrenching. Like, <laughs> what level of, of evil do you have to be? I was feeling like that burden of like, oh my God, I'm centralizing all this information that people are telling me about the scam but there's nothing I can do about it. Then we realized like everything he had said was a lie. He hadn't gone to the school he said he had gone to, you know, like I came, like I was like, how can he be my best friend? And I don't know his brother. How have I celebrated six birthdays without meeting any of his family? Mm. <laughs> and, and these are things that maybe you don't think about until after the fact, no? In untangling this web of lies, Sophia takes initiative, warning others to steer clear. But not before Renzo starts a new company, moves countries, and hones in on a whole new network to take advantage of. The story continues next episode. Decentralized information is a key component to a scammer's longevity. Digital nomads are a particularly juicy target as they are a constantly shifting community where everyone seems to know each other or of each other. It can be hard to keep the facts straight unless you write it down. This article is about Bob and why if you see a Bob type, you should avoid going into business with him slash her at all costs. Bob is an alias for a known schemer based out of Southeast Asia. Once home to exotic backpacking destinations, places like Bali, Chiang Mai, and Siem Reap are now filled with digital nomads, all potential victims of Bob and Bob types. Arman Anaturk's article goes on. In 2014, I dropped out of university to start a startup with a high school friend, Bob. In the following two years, I had my first taste of the startup world, taught hundreds of people in the UK how to code, made some money, and eventually lost it all in the end along with my, then, best friend, Bob. Two years later, 
I summed up the courage to present at fuck-up nights in Chiang Mai, an event where people publicly share their biggest failures. After the fuck-up nights presentation, I decided it was time to move on, I was relieved to have finally publicly shared my story, and I went back to focusing on my ongoing ventures. Until recently. So, fuck-up nights are held globally, and there are a lot of stories about getting burned by a business partner. But Armand's presentation was largely about his own shortcomings, and he didn't set out to burn Bob. Nevertheless, the story got out. A few days ago, I received an unexpected email from someone who had started working with Bob. Let's call this person, Sally. Sally wrote to me explaining that she was about to enter into a big work commitment with Bob but had her concerns. After Bob failed to provide any professional references, she decided to do her own research into his past business ventures and came across my fuck-up night's presentation. Watching the video, Sally drew parallels between both of our experiences working with Bob and decided to reach out to me and ask if I could share more details about the situation. I was surprised, to say the least. Quickly, suspicion took over me. I thought it was a hoax. Maybe it was Bob just trying to mess with me. Or maybe he had put someone else up to it. Eventually, I replied. At the time of replying, I still wasn't sure whether Sally was real or not, but I felt it was worth replying something, especially if it could prevent someone else from losing time and money to the hands of Bob. In the days that followed, Sally and I exchanged over 20 emails, detailing more about both of our experiences with Bob. She was also able to get in contact with several other business partners of Bob, some that I had known, others that I didn't but all of them with the same story, cheated out of their time and money. People got talking, got specifics in writing, got the facts straight, as a trail of victims overcame their fears and suspicions to share their experiences. Finally, information was being centralized and confusion was being erased. By now it was clear to Sally to discontinue working with Bob. Luckily, she didn't lose too much to him, but others, myself included, have lost a lot more. I can't stop the Bob types around the world from harming the people they do, but I can make people more aware of their traits. This is for the first time entrepreneurs, the inexperienced investors and the unknowing interns who may cross paths with a Bob in their life. Armand lays out the warning signs. 11 signs that you're dealing with a Bob type. Missed slash delayed deadlines. Constant excuses. Focuses more time on their image than their work leaving little to no trace of conversations. Taking spontaneous trips around the world without notice. He does well to keep things generic and not to share information that could identify anyone. But here's the thing. I knew Bob. I knew Sally. And as I was reading this article that had been forwarded to me, I knew there was someone I had to tell. Let's call him Gary. Uh, my name is Gary, and I started the company back in 2017 with Bob. You know when it seems like someone is everything, everywhere, all at once? Magnetic, yet enigmatic? Yeah, watch out for that guy. 
In our next episode, we'll go deep into how image, social capital, and unsubstantiated entrepreneurship are all that the bobs of the world need to stay afloat. Until soon, stay vigilant.